If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and the arts. I'm David Kern, and this week on Forma, we are bringing you an interview that I recorded a couple weeks ago with Jason Baxter. Uh, Jason is a professor over at Wyoming Catholic College. He's a professor of fine arts and humanities there, and he has a new book out called A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. This accessible introduction helps readers better appreciate and understand the complexity and layers of meaning of Dante's spiritual masterpiece. It's got really positive reviews from people like David Lyle Jeffrey, David Bentley Hart, and Joseph Pierce, among others. So if you are someone who loves Dante, or wants to love Dante, or who is new to Dante, or who is introducing students to, uh, who are new to Dante, it's a great option for you. This conversation dives into some of the topics that he talks about in the book, um, such as the complications of reading Dante, how to overcome those complications, uh, why Dante means so much to him, uh, the place of Dante in the 21st century, uh, and much, much more. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's the kind of conversation that I find myself um, right, furiously writing down questions, uh, things that I wanted to add, um, or, or just ask him to uh, you know, talk further about. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, he, he surpassed my expectations, I'll put it that way. Um, so I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, especially if you just, um, you know you're supposed to like Dante or you feel like you might like Dante, but you just need a little bit more help and a little bit more information. I, I think this is going to be right up your alley. Or if you're just a Dante enthusiast, I think you'll enjoy it. Before we kick it over to that conversation, though, I just need to say a quick word from our friends over at Roman Roads Media, who are bringing you this podcast this month. They publish classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers, homeschool co-ops, and anyone who has a thirst to learn. And they have an announcement. Save the date because their annual spring sale is, well, it's this week from April 23rd to the 30th. You can save up to 50% on their logic, rhetoric, poetry, Latin economics, old Western culture courses, and much more. So if you and your kids are ready to jump into Homer with West Callahan, Shakespeare with Peter Lightheart, Tolkien with Jonathan McIntosh, or poetry with Matt Whitling, now is the time to save. But there's more. In addition to this published sale, they have an exclusive offer for listeners of our podcast network. Over the last year, the guys at Roman Roads have been releasing a great book reader, uh, part of their great book reader series, to accompany their old Western culture curriculum. Ten of the planned 16 readers are now published and available for purchase on their website. And during this spring sale, they're offering our listeners a free reader with any curriculum purchase. So before checking out, just add at least one reader to your cart and use the coupon code Circe Reader to apply that discount. That's C-I-R-C-E. R-E-A-D-E-R, Circe Reader at checkout. So whether you're buying the Old Western Culture series, um, signing up for their rhetoric series, their poetry series, whatever it is, use code Circe Reader and you get a free uh, free uh, literary reader from them. These are, we have their readers around our office here and we really like them. They're great resources, so um, we recommend you pick them up. Uh, they're all classic works that the Roman Roads are republishing and bringing back to us in new editions with new introductions and all that that sort of thing that that is common with that but they're they're really good additions so check that out and again that's romanroadsmedia.com all right without further ado as they say let's get you over to my conversation with jason baxter if you want to learn more about this book you can head over to amazon or you can head over to the baker books website and search a beginner's guide to dante's divine comedy and there will be information on description how to buy it testimonials all the normal stuff that you'd be looking for all right, here is my conversation with Jason Baxter. Hope you enjoy it. Well, I am here with uh, Dr. Jason Baxter from Wyoming Catholic College, the author of A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. So before we dive in too deeply, uh, welcome, Dr. Baxter. Thanks so much for joining me here on Forma on the Cersei Podcast Network. Thank you. It's a great privilege. I'm very honored. Uh, very grateful. Thank you. So... Um, 
Wyoming Catholic College, is there a connection there between teaching at a Catholic college and an appreciation for Dante? Or, you know, did you, did that kind of, did one of, did the Dante appreciation come long before you were teaching at a Catholic college? Well, that's a good question. I think, I think every Catholic university worth its name these days is, is teaching Dante in some capacity yeah. and oftentimes te- teaching it properly. Um, I think, you know, basically at, at this, at this point, Dante's an unavoidable classic, but it seems yeah. to me that if he's taught in, if he's taught in high school, it's just the first so-called canticle. It's just inferno. It's just yeah. hell. Yeah, yeah. Just, it gives kind of a skewed, kind of gives a skewed vision of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Dorothy Sayers yeah. once said that um, wherever you finish reading is where you'll go. So our public schools are are doing a great disservice <laughs> to the students. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think it. you know Wyoming at the college is one of a, a handful of schools that that teaches the whole thing properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I think um, in the past couple of years, the the poem has gained uh, a special importance at Wyoming Catholic College. Um, it, I think the, the students have come to love it in an extraordinary way because our students do an enormous amount of, uh, of work in, in theology, particularly in Aquinas and in philosophy, particularly with Aristotle. Dante has this, gives them this unbelievable gift of sort of incarnating a world of abstract philosophy and a world of abstract doctrine. And my colleagues have told me that in upper level theology or philosophy courses, um, to their to their surprise, the students keep referring again and again and again, whether it's say Aquinas's notion of the, the light that God puts in our minds in order to see him or certain notions of, of moral philosophy, the students continually go back to Dante. And I think the reason that mm-hmm. is because he's an incarnational thinker. He's richly imaginative. He gives birth to a physical form, a vision, a picture of what other great authors have talked about in abstract terms. And so, yes, I think I think Dante is important for for every Catholic education, but he's begun to be, I think, particularly important in a really exciting way for this school. So, so like. Dante, would you say that Dante is preparing the students in a sense to study that higher level theology? And then at the same time, their study of theology is preparing them for Dante. Like it's, it's like sort of a, a cyclical, a cyclical thing that's kind of built or just kind of, I don't, I don't want to say it wasn't purposeful, but there was something sort of magical about the way that happened in your curriculum or was that like I, very yeah, I purposeful? So. Um, I mean, there are a lot of purposeful things here, <laughs> and then there are a lot of there are a lot of things that we established, and we have come come to to see that they were more meaningful and more purposeful. I don't know; it's been like a Lord of the Rings experience out here, right? <laughs> there's certainly there's certainly a vague plan, but <laughs> most of the time, you know, they're discovering that their choices actually had more meaning than even they had been capable of realizing. So I think, I think that's a great way to describe it. I think Dante prepares the students for, for upper level theology and for upper level philosophy. And, but they also come into a Dante class with already some basic, um, some basic reading. So they've already read Virgil. Um, obviously Dante sort of rewrites Virgil's book six of the Aeneid, um, for his own Inferno. Um, but what Dante does is, you know, particularly for, um, for the Inferno, is that Dante rewrites classical classical moral philosophy, and he uses that as the architectural principles for how how it's shaped and what it looks like and and what it feels like. So it's kind of it's an interesting moment. Dante basically embodies again. I'm going to use the, my my term. He has this kind of incarnational poetics, but he creates a hell, which is basically a place that every pagan could have known it's it's. It's, it's playing rules, right? So no one in hell is without excuse, despite the fact that the sinners keep excusing themselves. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. but Dante steals a big chunk of, of moral philosophy from Cicero and from Aristotle. So by the time my students actually hit that, they're vaguely familiar with these, with these moral principles. Um, so you're right. It's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a neat thing. They come in with a bit of, with a bit of background reading. Um, both in uh, sort of imaginative humanities as well as the sort of the moral and the theological. Um, but Dante, in a really neat way, um, makes people thirsty and hungry to go back to their more abstract treatises and try to get to know it well. Hmm. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, as you know, you know, reading a, an article of Aquinas, for, um, it, you know, for a younger student, a high school student or early college student, is, is 
they might get it. They might understand the mechanism, but the whole time that they're trying to figure it out, they have what I call a so what moment. They're asking themselves, why does this matter? I get the sort of mechanisms, the sort of, you know, the plumbing of the logic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what Dante's gift to those kinds of students is, it makes those questions oftentimes seem burning and urgent. And so I think, I think you're right. I love the idea of that, that cyclical effect. And I guess if I could just add one more interesting thing, yeah, to our surprise, um, Dante also comes back in at one of the kind of capstone moments of this school um, in our science 402 class, which is really a course which looks at the, the relationship between faith and reason. Um, and the final capstone lecture, which is really sort of um, an, a big overview of the glorious grandeur of the cosmos. Uh, my colleagues use quotations from Dante um, to mm. sort of, <laughs> they use poetry to sort of get at the poetry of the cosmos. And I think Dante mm. would be pleased. Mm. So, yeah, so the poem, like I said, is really neat. It's, it's really starting to be woven into the fabric of, of the curriculum in special ways, not all of which we foresaw um, 10 years ago. So it seems to me like there's, I don't know, something of a Dante revival in some circles of, of our culture. Um, maybe I'm, maybe it's always been this way, but you know, whether it's your book or that book Rod Dreher published a few years ago about how, you know, Dante can save right. your life. And there's another commentary that came out around the same time as that, I believe. Um, and then, you know, Anthony Eslin had his uh, translations that came out, what, seven, was it seven or eight years ago? Or is it longer than that now? Um, mm-hmm. But yes, about think, that, yeah. Right. I think modern library, and it seems like there's an a uh, I don't know if it's a a newfound interest or something, but you know maybe the culture at large is uh, well, I don't know about that, but you know a culture at larger than maybe previous you know previous decades seems to be interested in Dante in a way that you know it wasn't for a while. Would you agree with that, or am I just making that up because I seem to to you know be in the right circles? <laughs> No, I think you're right. I, I think it is a special moment. Yeah, and I think, say, the, the, the huge success of Roger's book, How Dante Can Save Your Life. Um, but also, in, um, I mean, during the, the Jubilee of Mercy, um, Pope Francis was reading Dante, and mm-hmm. he asked the Catholic faithful to read it during the Year of Mercy. Mm-hmm. And so that generated a lot of excitement and a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, our college tried to respond to that by doing a series of lectures, which I did, which ultimately became the book. Oh, okay. um, Dante okay. in the year of mercy. So I think, I think you're right. Um, I wonder what, ex- I wonder what explains it. Um, I was going to ask, what does that mean? Why? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking that in, in mid 20th century Catholic theology, there was, there was an exciting moment in which, um, some authors argued that if you merely had the truth, and this seems to me really important to, um, the, the homeschooling movement, if you merely have a set of correct opinions, the danger is that you'll have a group of people who believe correctly and don't care that their opinions are correct. In other words, if truth is disconnected from goodness and from beauty, um, then it just seems dry. You could even sort of possess all the correct opinions, but your will will remain limp and uninspired to actually perform, you know, to bring your life in accordance with that. If that's the case, if in some sense, if, if the modern experience is a divorce between goodness, beauty, and truth, then perhaps the reason there's such a, an inherent hunger for Dante is that he's the one who brings it back together. Mm. He, for, for Dante, of course, truth is expressed in this, in this poetic way. It's expressed in these, these memorable, these unforgettable penances and sins and also visions of glory. Um, mm. He does that. Um, but also, he has a great line um, in Paradiso 5. Beatrice says to the pilgrim, The heart has not understood until the foot moves. The heart has not understood, understood until the foot moves. In other words, if a statement is true, and if we perceive it correctly, then we should have both an aesthetic and an ethical response to it. In other words, if we see it, we should see it as beautiful and begin to desire it as pleasing. It should warm our hearts just thinking about it. And that sort of warming of the hearts should actually kind of inject a kind of strength of will into the heart in which we want to change our lives to act in accordance with it. 
So that might, I think that might be maybe, I mean, a possible explanation for the reason there, there has been a kind of Dante revival. He's difficult. He, I mean, he's, he's certainly, he's certainly hard to read, but I think when we get him, I mean, when my students see what he's up to, um, there's inevitably a kind of moment of smiling and silent admiration on all the student faces. <laughs> they think, oh, wow. It's as if, it's as if we have to be reintroduced to our own tradition. Mm-hmm. We know it yeah, at a certain level, right? We know it at a certain catechetical level, at a certain level of opinions. Um, but I think Dante forces us to recognize it as truer, more beautiful, and if I may, more good than we had previously, previously recognized. Hmm. Well, I've got, you know, I think, I feel like we could talk about, you know, what that means, you know, about our culture and what the positive effects it could have for hours on end, but you know, we don't have that much time right now. So I want to shift gears a little bit and then maybe we can come back to that in a minute because I'm curious about, about, um, your, your life and Dante, you know, um, what Dante has meant to your life. And, and I guess to start with, to start with wh- where did you, where was your introduction to Dante and did you love him from the get go or did it, or was, did it take a while for you to sort of um, acquire the affection that, you, that you've gained for him, for him and for his work? What, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, no, I, and yeah, it's, it's telling actually, because I think it's influenced my own writing and my own teaching hmm. uh, because the first time I read it, um, I, I, maybe I shouldn't mention the institution I was reading it at because I don't think it was his fault. Um, I read it when I was, when I was 18 for the first time. Okay. Um, and I wasn't Catholic at that time, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I do, I do have a question about that, that I think we should touch on. Yeah. Now. You know, I'll let you finish that thought, but then I remind me to talk about that because I want to, what can Dante mean or does Dante mean different things for people who are Catholic and people who are not? So I'll let you finish that thought and then maybe we can come back to that idea. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's another great question. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all at the time. Um, I think we had to read the whole thing in preparation for one big gigantic three hour seminar. Hmm. And so we were supposed to spend, (laughs) we were supposed to spend, it takes about 15 minutes per canto. Um, and there are a hundred Conti. So I think we were supposed to, you know, spend a, a huge chunk of time in preparation and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I think it was also a bad translation, mm. but I couldn't figure, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I couldn't figure out who all these people, um, why all these people kept talking. <laughs> I didn't know who they were. I didn't know yeah. what they were talking about. I didn't yeah. understand this elaborate, this elaborate architecture. And maybe at the, you know, at the very least to anticipate a little bit of it. Um, it seems in, in a, in a Protestant theological tradition versus Catholic theological tradition, um, there's not as much, you know, sort of reliance on the scholastic tradition. So this was all really quite foreign to, uh, to a Protestant who, um, so I, I didn't understand this elaborate, um, moral scholastic philosophy underlying it. And so basically what I did is probably, <laughs> hopefully what my students don't do. <laughs> I, I basically skimmed the thing and got a really incomplete picture of it and thought yeah. that I didn't like it. Yeah. That was reading yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Reading two, <laughs> I'm afraid to say, wasn't actually much better. I read the whole thing this time. I understood it a little bit better, um, but I only appreciated individual moments. But at least there were some hooks in it. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of individual moments in which I thought, you know what, that's a really memorable and excellent way of expressing this. Mm-hmm. And so I left reading two with a just kind of um, a fragmented picture of five or six moments, which I thought were admirable. Sort of. And this, it wasn't until, yeah. Would you say it's sort of like the beginning of a, um, like the beginnings of sort of an aesthetic appreciation? You at least saw that there were some lines of poetry that were, that were beautiful and, and worth liking, but, but you right. but didn't see how they fit into the whole. And so there was still like sort of a, a gray veil over it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't until reading three that I actually began uh, to force myself to try to get a more comprehensive understanding of what, of, of, of the overall architecture. Hmm. And so I think, I think my own teaching and my own writing has been motivated by my own experience. I wish that, I wish that I had been able to love the poem from the beginning. And I wonder if, uh, I wonder if something could have helped um, and so I think a lot of my, a lot of my efforts as a writer and as a teacher have been aimed at, 
trying to keep my students from having that experience. So for instance, in Inferno, if I remember correctly, there's something like 250 speaking characters in Inferno alone. Um, there are, there are you know, something like Exactly. Can you imagine? A, uh, I mean, it's like a, it's like a Tolstoy novel, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine 250 characters speaking characters in a play? You mm. wouldn't remember who who was who, right? Mm. Um, but but then Dante has something like over over a thousand proper names. He mentions mm. names of rivers. He mentions obscure mythological characters. He mentions he men- and then and then there's just the fact that. He was writing in a way that everyone in his age would have understood exactly who these major celebrities or political figures were, right? Just as we, just as we would pick up from, you know, from <laughs> a few words, right? Um, the famous politician from New York who always wears pantsuits, right? Um, <laughs> no one, <laughs> like everyone would pick up on that, on that illusion. You wouldn't ha- have to have a commentary. Right, um, and right. so forth. And some of those, but a thousand years from now, that will be, you know, obscure scholarly knowledge. So similarly with, with Dante, um, and then of course Dante has these 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 debates, these arguments, and these questions, with hot burning questions in our day. Like, to what extent does do the astral motions of the of the planets influence our our free will? Hmm. That's a dated question for us now, but obviously for us, say the question between free will and neuroscience, or free will and um, sort of behaviorism. Those are hot questions, right? Mm-hmm. They will not be hot questions 500 years from now. So in any case, um, that was one of my motivations in, in writing this book, is to help establish who these people are and why the conversations that they're having and the presentations that Dante gives, why this stuff is still urgent, even within our contemporary situation. Uh, as you know, in the introduction to your book, you know, many of your students would say they were interested in Dante or they were looking forward to it. And then when they came to it, they were discouraged by the amount of, you know, the confusion, the confusing form, poetic forms, and, and the sheer volume of information that they had to know, which you just described. Would you, is it possible that that is a flaw in the book, that it, that it takes so much uh, remedial work, so to speak, to, to really love it, to really appreciate it? Or... Um, I mean, is it possible to love the book without all of that? And I guess those aren't opposite questions of one another, but I I'll guess I'll just phrase them as two questions then. Is it possible that that mm-hmm. is a flaw in the work? Um, and then can you love it and appreciate it without that background work? That's a great question. Hmm. And I'm not saying it's a flaw, like it makes it, you know, not one of the great works of the Western canon or, you know, of, of all right. literature, of, of art of all time, but it, you know, even right. the greatest works can have minor flaws here and there. So, uh, you know, it's just something I've been yeah. thinking about and, you know, thought I'd bring to an expert because yeah, I don't have an answer for it. Uh, I mean, my temptation is just to say that it's, it's a natural process of history. Okay. Um, you know, just as, just as a, if you say if you're in a in a European gallery and you're looking at portraits mm-hmm. um, of people who are wearing the most fashionable, gorgeous, you know, Armani like clothes of their age, and obviously they they feel really good about how they're being portrayed. So we look at them, and if you take great schoolers to say you know say to the National Gallery in DC <laughs> yeah. and show them these portraits of Rubens, they burst out laughing. Right? Yeah, a lot of snickering. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, here are these, you know, sort of people who are the equivalent of, you know, <laughs> the Illuminati, right? The, the literati <laughs> walking down the streets of Milan and feeling gorgeous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and just a couple hundred years later, we laugh at how foolish they look. Yeah, I mean, Dante's yeah. actually really good on that. That's just, I mean, if history changes fast and nothing changed faster than fats. Yeah, look so, at the and, and some ways, <laughs> Yeah, exactly, which you're coming back, by the way. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. um, but... Uh, um, but I think I think it's so. In some sense, Dante's just the Dante's just the victim of of history, and and uh, to a certain extent, you know, every great book um, has to be rescued, rescued, just as Pompeii has to be dug out from under you know volcanic ash, mm. um, and so everything has to be translated and brought back. So I think in some ways. Um, it's a flaw, but it wouldn't have been a flaw for the original audience. So I think, well, and then, yeah, and then maybe one other quick thing on that. Yeah, yeah, please. In some ways, one, one of Dante's powers is, well, let's put it this way. Da- 
Dante was written in a pre-modern world. In other words, he was written in a world which is to use Marshall McLuhan's, to borrow from Marshall McLuhan, technologically cold. Um, in other words, in our world of CGI and DVDs and IMAX theaters and texting and so forth, any literary experience is going to feel slow. In Dante's world, I, I'm convinced that there were moments that parents wouldn't let they, their parents wouldn't let the children read it. Not because it was, you know, immoral or anything like that, but just because it was too scary. <laughs> it's like the new CGI film that you don't have any moral objections to, but you might not let your kids see it because you just know they're going to have nightmares the following, you know, the following night. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think Dante feels like that. There are moments in which the way he talks, I think people would have felt a sense of a sense of vertigo while they're reading it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that stuff is lost on us. And so Dante's, you know, Dante's Paradiso, for example, I think would have been as exciting for its first readers as maybe Christopher Nolan's Interstellar is for us, right? Hmm. I mean, we're willing to sit there and watch 15 minutes of a, of a, you know, of a space shuttle trying to dock, right? And it seems really exciting. <laughs> yeah. In a similar way, Dante's body floating up through the, through the stars would have been that kind of sci-fi journey. Hmm. Now, there's more to it than that, right? That's sure. why it's yeah. lasted. Yeah. Um, but I'm tempted yeah. to say that it's not, it's not poor old Dante's fault. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things I you know you you compare it to say uh, let's just let's just say Homer for example um, the Iliad or the Odyssey those books don't it seems like um, take uh, the same sort of remedial work um, I mean you can mm-hmm. you can sort of give a student this is the background you know Paris took Helen a war started like this sort of a very simple basic premise that kids can buy into and then yeah. as they go other than maybe the scenes where they're like naming all the ships or you know they're listing a bunch right. of soldiers <laughs> that doesn't really, they don't really don't really get hung up on all that extra detail. Um, what is it right. about uh, Dante that makes yeah. that so much more confusing for students than say the Iliad or the Odyssey? Is it yeah. just that the Iliad's got a whole bunch of battle scenes and the Odyssey's this journey quest where, you know, there's sirens right. and shipwrecks and stuff like that. And it's much more uh, tangible mm-hmm. and like it takes place in, yeah. in theory in our world, as opposed to taking place in, you know, a world that yeah. is, purely well maybe not purely imaginary but essentially right. imaginary and that's that there's just I know, really, yeah i think i think there are different modes in, in constructing stories um one mode of constructing a story I, mean, I guess you could call it aristotelian it's sort of streamlined it removes as many extra pieces as possible and the odyssey is more like this than the iliad isn't it um and, and then right, tragedy yeah. it's certainly more like this and tragedy, in some ways, is more like a modern novel. You have a couple of characters, um, and you have a, you know, Hemingway is, 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 is the most like this, right? You have one character and a, and a boat and a fish, right? Um, right, right. And I think in some ways, I think our modern, our modern preference is for those kind of streamlined stories. We love, above all, plot. Yeah, um, yeah. But then there's, a, there's another really interesting way of thinking about stories. Um, Hesiod does this. Um, maybe a contemporary example is something like Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. the plot, if it just if it just unfolded, would take about eighty seven seconds. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But Terrence Malick likes this kind of visual lushness of moving the things. He's, he likes to sort of build up a world. So I mean, think about one as a kind of a trajectory, and think oh. about the other as a, a kind of a cyclical process, like waves radiating out from a pebble which is struck a pond. I think Dante is more like the latter. Um, he does have a plot to it. And in fact, um, if you do this experiment, if you just read it one canto at a time and then put it away and then go up and tell your kids that canto as a bedtime story, it is one of the most thrilling stories they've ever heard. I've, I've done it. <laughs> I, give, I give a proper children's version of it. Um, mm. But they love it. They love the plot. In some sense, when all the when all the the plurality is 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 a really good story and it's just exciting, right? Um, sometimes Dante almost gets caught by demons, and sometimes he sees people plunged in mud, and sometimes he has to cry, climb up hills, and sometimes he has to watch people carrying boulders. So I think if in some ways, if we got rid of all of the speaking characters and their particular historical personalities, we would have that. I think we'd have something more like you're describing, like the Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in some ways, um, one of I think one of the interesting things about this 
Um, and this starts to come up in, in toward the end. Say, if you read Paradiso 26, Dante gets examined by John on whether or not he has love. And come to find out, John just wants to know if Dante can define the virtue of charity correctly. He wants to know if Dante has the power not only to define it correctly, but to make other people wish that they had it because it's such a beautiful explanation. In other words, um, Dante gives this vision where every true theologian is in certain sense a poet. That is, if you really see it as true and beautiful, you have to incarnate in your language and make it beautiful for others. Hmm. So while Dante is describing love, he gives this kind of cosmic vision of all the different kinds of loves that exist within the world. And behind each of them, of course, is God. Hmm. He gives this vision of sort of God having written this love letter to the world of hundreds of pages. And what we find in history and our individual experiences are just scattered leaves from this big, gigantic love letter. So I think in some ways, the very plurality of Dante is meaningful. The fact that you have to encounter love, even sometimes twisted love in a myriad of different places, gives Dante the ability to describe ultimate love in this kaleidoscopic um, and glorious and glorious vision. And I think that's why, although there is a story at it, and it would be cool, maybe I'll do it someday. It'd be cool just to strip all the complex details and turn it into a children's story. Hmm. And yet, um, you know, for our students, for the, for the mature high school student and for the, the college student, they're ready to get this, this vision of love, of this kaleidoscopic myriad vision of love, which um, basically makes them realize that every previous vision of God or love that they had held before was a wan and faint imitation of the real thing. Hmm. Well, um, you've, you've used a phrase um, a couple times. Um, I think you said uh, you talked about teaching Dante properly a couple times. Um, so it, with a little bit of time that we have left, and you know, I feel like we could talk about this. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about this for, for a lot longer. Um, when you talk about teaching Dante properly, can you give... Can you give people that are listening um, a couple of tips? And I know you know the book will get into this um, on a much deeper level. But could you give a couple of tips for people um, in two different ways? One, when they're getting ready to teach it to, say, high school students, because that's where many of our listeners will be working with. And then mm -hmm. also, um, if they're getting ready to just read it themselves, and maybe they've never read it before. Can you give one or two tips for people in those two situations as they're, as they're kind of thinking about how to prepare themselves and their students for Dante. And let's assume, you know, maybe they don't have the number of hours in a given week that you might have on a college course or something like that. But, right. um, but they do want to, they, they, they know that there's a need and they have the desire to, to read it with their students or for themselves, but they want to prepare in a way that is um, actually useful. Um, that doesn't just involve, you know, you know, what, what are the 10 steps they found on some website on the internet or cliff notes or something right. like that. Yeah. Some actual, real, yeah. usable um, tips that they can use to prepare. Right. What a great question. I write about this a little bit in, um, in the first chapter. I call it zooming in and zooming out. And I say that, well, Dante likes to be mysterious and he likes to be elusive. And so sometimes, um, say in the, in the very first canto, um, the pilgrim is trying to climb a mountain, but there are three different scary beasts that stop him. A wolf, a leopard, and a lion. And Dante never actually nails down exactly what those things are. In some sense, he wants to leave it at first in a dreamscape. So I think to just sort of encounter Dante's imagination at work um, is is a good first step, that kind of zoomed in version. Mm. What does it feel like to read this particular canto? I guess maybe even more basic. It seems just to sort of read it one canto at a time, preferably out loud, and then just to ask that simple question. What did this canto feel like? Um, it seems that the next step is the kind of zooming out phase. And that's just, and I think probably this would just be best for, for high schoolers. Um, if any, if, if, if a great book can be defined as that which can sustain multiple readings at multiple different stages of your life, um, then it seems to me that 
your first encounter, it's fine just to get the story down and the architecture. Um, what are these, what does this imaginary world look like and why is it organized in this way? That's a tremendous accomplishment because it starts, it starts helping you bring into view moral virtues and moral vices, which are, um, off our radar as a culture. Um, so I think just to sort of build up the architecture, um, in some sense, just a literal level is, is a fine thing to do with high, high schoolers. But then I think a next step, and I'm not sure how much you would do this at the high school level, um, but when you start to get into a career level, then you, once you've, you've had a literary experience, and then once you've kind of zoomed out and talked about some of the, the moral architecture, which frames out this vision, then you can start to ask more interesting questions. Like um, one of the things I'm most interested in is, say, this character in hell, Farinata. He's kind of an old patriot. Um, and Dante portrays him magnificently heroic. And so you just ask a really great question. And this is why a collegiate seminar is so enjoyable. And I don't know if this is quite a high school question, but you can ask the magnificent question, why is Farinata portrayed as so admirable, even though he's in hell? Hmm. And if that conversation takes off, it's something really interesting. You get where Farinata is, right? You've got the moral architecture. So you have the reading experience, and the, and the reading experience comes as a surprise that you admire this guy more than you think you ought to. Then the con- real conversation can begin. Is that the kind of question that you think is valuable to ask uh, sort of repeatedly about many of the different characters in the books? Um, say all three books, like why, why is Dante choosing to portray this character uh, in this way, given where he is right. and given what we know about it? Is that a question that is right. uh, somewhat universal about the characters in the book? Yes, I think so. Um, I think it seems to me, especially in Inferno and Purgatorio, um, because the characters there don't actually represent themselves very well. Um, in other words, Dante has allowed them. Dante has allowed them to give the to talk about the to talk about themselves in the way they want to be seen. And this is why it's important to know just a mm-hmm. little bit of background That's information. Because you realize they're airbrushing their own their own lives, they're airbrushing their own character, and what's fascinating is that Dante gets you to um, be sympathetic with every character in, in hell that you meet. Um, but what you realize in the end is that each one of these characters, in some sense, let me maybe this would be a good way to end. But in some sense, the, the reason hell, Dante's vision of hell, is so fascinating. It's because it's a place of freedom. Hell is the place where you finally get what you've always wanted without any pesky parents or conscience or teachers or anything keeping you from it. Hmm. And the way that human beings are unreformed is that we will choose one thing and love one thing and that thing only. So in some sense, hell is the ultimate place of freedom where the, where the, the wicked damned characters get the one thing they loved and as they talk about the one thing they love, they're actually quite persuasive about it. And it's only from a distance. It's only with perspective do you realize that Dante has shown them as sort of um, loving idolatrously, capable of only loving one thing. And so I think hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a really exciting vision to, um, for, for, to, to get. But what it requires in a way is being patient with each character. Um, and dealing, knowing a little bit about that character's background, and then asking the tough question of why Dante portrays that individual sinner so sympathetically. Hmm. Well, again, I feel like a million questions come to mind that I could follow up on, but I'd have a couple of things I want to get to before we have to let you go. So I'm going to, it's yeah, going to sure. somewhat feel a, a little bit abruptly switch gears here before I, before you have to go. Um, do you have any tips? I guess it's somewhat similar, but do you have any tips for a sort of active reading of Dante? In other words, are there kinds of things that people should mark up, be looking for, um, the kinds of questions that people should be asking of different cantos or, or things to, to highlight, or you know, just that sort of active reading? Are there specific things that are uniquely valuable when reading Dante specifically? Hmm. Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, it seems to me that if you had, um, if you had a, a notebook or a legal pad out next to your next to your book, mm-hmm. in each new place, 
that you came to. You sort of uh, added it to your map. That would be a really helpful thing. Um, in fact, that could be, I think that could be a neat, a neat assignment for a high school student. Um, create your own map of the world of Dante. And uh, that could be really fun. I think it was help them sort of etch it onto their memories. And in fact, I think that's exactly what Dante wanted us to do. Is that sort of thing. He wanted this to be a vivid, rich, colorful memory technique, among other things. Um, and in the meantime, I always encourage my students to take lots of notes with pencil in their margins. Um, and basically, um, every speech which is given, you read that speech and then pause for a minute, put your finger in the book and ask yourself, okay, what was the basic point of that speech? And that's a really, that's a really good exercise and not, a, not an easy one um, because Dante's characters all speak in a very poetical fashion. So for instance, no one would ever in Dante say, the sun was shining on the hill, but rather something like, uh, the shoulders were bathed in the light of that planet which always leads us straight. <laughs> and so in, in that instance, you have to sort of, you have to kind of untie these poetic puzzles Mm-hmm. So I think if you if you got your particularly your high school students well and college students in the habit of um, untying the metaphors and sort of what is called paraphrases, uh, a poetic paraphrases, that would be a very valuable thing to do. In some sense, mm-hmm. you'd just be you'd be translating Dante's verse into prose, and also keeping a uh, keeping a list of the uh, of of the map of where the pilgrim goes. Mm-hmm. That seems to me that that would be a great thing to do on a first read. Hmm. Do you have any, uh, I guess this is my last tips question. Do you have any advice for someone who is uh, sort of not reading it in a sort of community? They're reading it just for themselves. You know, maybe it's a mom or a dad who, who feels like uh, right. there's something lacking and Dante was something they missed. And so they're going to dive yeah. in and try to do it, but they're not doing it. They're not preparing to teach a class or, le- or give a lecture right. or read it for a book club or in some kind of community. It's just kind of a personal right. endeavor. Any tips for someone like that where there's maybe not the conversation happening? Oh man, what a hard, what a hard question. Don't, would, don't do say, that. <laughs> I guess I would say, could you please make a community? Um, yeah. you know, could you find, could you find four or five people who would like to read it with you? Um, but let me go ahead and just stick to the terms of your question. Um, well, um, <laughs> you could buy my book. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I, you know, but I guess, you know, joking aside, that's the, that's the sort of individual I in part had in mind um, of the individual. So, so Roger describes his feeling about Dante is that it was like Mount Everest. He knew it was there and he knew it was magnificent, but he was too afraid to go climb up into that thin air uh, at the very top. And I think a lot of people feel, you know, a lot of people feel that way about Dante. Um, so it seems to just take it. Uh, so um, that's why I created the, this book as a tool. You could go one of two ways. You could either read five kanji from Dante and just try to figure out what's going on. And then maybe ask yourself a couple of interesting questions. Right? Why, why does this character so, so attracted to me though, the fact that she's in hell, you start sort of just creating a list of questions and then you could go read what I wrote about it. Um, which I think in some ways would be creating a conversation or you could go the other way around. You could read, what I wrote about it, and then go read the five Conti very slowly and see if you could add additional questions, additional observations to those which I have made. Um, that seems to be one way to do it. But it seems the important thing to, um, to, con- uh, you know, to continually ask yourself is, how is this translated into modern terms? Because I think the principles which regulate, regulate Dante's imagination are, are, are urgent, <laughs> are perennial and urgent. And so I think to continually ask yourself how things, how things would translate into a modern terms. For example, I'll just give this one little example. Um, In one of the parts of hell, um, it's completely disgusting. It's the flatterers. The flatterers are those who have used uh, their, their words to, to manipulate. And Dante's vision of the excrement that they're up to their eyebrows in is absolutely putrid. Um, and you, you ask yeah, I mean, an interesting question. Why does Dante hate flatterers so much? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we would think that is, you know, certainly a lesser form than beating up someone at a bar, but for Dante, it's worse to be a flatterer than to get into a drunken bar room fight. Right. <laughs> um, 
And if you begin to think about that, and I think kind of, this is what I try to do, try to translate into modern terms, then you realize, oh yeah, these are the sycophantic people who have elite degrees, who spend their entire lives flattering people in power, keeping them in power. And consequently, all of their words have no nutritional value, right? They've had all the nutritional value removed. They're merely in it for themselves. And these, in some sense, are the people who insulate the rich and powerful from having to make just decisions. So all of a sudden, if you translate the court flatterer into, you know, the modern political political scientist who is merely in it for enabling the man, the man or woman in power to retain their position, you begin to realize why Dante's heart could sort of smolder. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, you got time for two more questions? Of course. Okay, so um, I'll finish with a, with an easy one. This might be, this is one that I promised we'd come back to. Uh, Dante, for Catholics as opposed to non-Catholics, you said you had first read it when you were not Catholic. You're teaching at a Catholic mm-hmm. college now. Um, and of course, um, it's part of the Catholic literary tradition. Um, do you think that there is um, a, I mean, would you, do you see a disconnect in your students who maybe are not Catholic or people you've read it with who are not Catholic? Or um, is it, is it, yeah. pretty universally applicable regardless of whatever kind of faith tradition you're you're a part yeah, of. Yeah, great question. Right. I think it is more difficult for Protestants to appreciate it on a first read. Um, but I think the only reason that is just because of background information. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Catholics are accustomed, Catholics love to classify things, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And that's Probably stuff, partly that's, because of Dante. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, we have seven deadly sins. We have mm-hmm. works of corporal <laughs> mercy, works of spiritual mercy. We, I mean, we love to count these things off. Yeah. And I mean, that's really that's really an inheritance of, of the medieval university. Um, and thus, Dante living in the world of the medieval university transmits that. So for us, you know, seven deadly sins and that kind of thing is, um, I think it's, 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 we have the background information that makes approaching, approaching the poem easier. So I think that's what I meant, that it's harder for a Protestant to to begin. Mm. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that I think it's I think it's applicable to both. Dante's not really all that polemical as a Catholic. In fact, he's in some ways, you know, well, he was admired by Protestants for a long time. Um, there's this uh, there's this library in Manchester, England, that has stained glass windows of all the Protestant reformers. Luther, Whitcliffe, and Dante is on one of the windows. <laughs> this 19th century vision, you know, because he was you know, so critical. Yeah, because he's so critical. Of, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I think I mean that's an, that's an easy one, but I think the fact the fact that um, I think this is a Catholic teaching, but I think it's also very much sort of at the heart of Protestant theology. The fact that Dante um, believes that. Um, all of morality basically leads to an interior experience of love. Um, Dante got at that, I think, well, I mean, the monastic tradition, but also his own love lyric tradition of the day. Um, but that's something that's really moving to Protestants. And when I've spoken to Protestant audiences and done my best to explain with accuracy what Dante is doing here or there, the Protestant audiences have been really moved. He almost kind of, you know, they, they feel like this is an author they want to go read. So I guess that, w- that would be, that would be my, my main message here is that I think again, because of the background, because of the background information is a little bit more difficult to begin, but I think both Catholic audiences and Protestant audiences stand to gain an enormous amount from this poem. Hmm. Okay. So let's, let's assume you've convinced people to read Dante. They picked up your book as their reading partner. Uh, is there, which translation do you recommend? What's your favorite translation of Dante? You mentioned earlier that, you know, translation does make a big difference and there are many of them mm-hmm. out there, um, from mm-hmm. a variety of well, in, eras and periods. Right. Well, in the book for copyright reasons, I had to, I had to do it myself. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, and I don't know, maybe your, maybe your listeners will be interested. Um, I will be coming out with a new translation uh, two years from now. Oh, um, wow. But, so get, so you get yours. I don't think, <laughs> yes. I don't, think you, I don't think you should wait for that, though. Um, <laughs> it seems, I mean, I, I think uh, 
the the Hollander translation is good. Um, I think uh, the notes in the Hollander translation can be a little overpowering and intimidating. Uh, they're very mm-hmm. scholarly. I love them, but I realize that they might be a bit too much for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that the Hollander translation tries to to balance um, accuracy um, uh, to the text. I feel like it's a very faithful translation. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, so I guess with the translation, you always have to make a decision, don't you? Either you recreate in your in your language a gracefulness, which is analogous to what you found in the um, in the original language, or you stick really literally. So the Hollander is good because of how literal it sticks. But um, Anthony Eslin's translation is is more poetic. Um, it's um, it, it, this, if this metaphor makes sense, it's a monastic metaphor. Eslin's translation tastes better. Um, I mean, Hollander's translation is, you know, eating, I don't know, um, like granola with no honey on it. And (laughs) Eslin's translation is is much more flavorful. Right. Um, and so I I like both of those. So they both have their place. uh, For different reasons. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Baxter, thank you so much for joining me. This has been really fun. Um, I'm kind of inspired to go back and reread some Dante. And I've never read the Hollander translation, so I may have to do that. Um, your book is called A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. Is it out now? It's out now, right? It is. Uh, where, is, it where, is. Would you, where would you recommend people get it? Where's the best place for... I always like to ask authors where the best place for you is to grab it. Is that from the publisher, Amazon, your website? Uh, I don't think it makes a difference to me, um, okay. but it's available. It's available both on Baker's website and on Amazon. Um, I imagine Baker would probably prefer uh, readers to go straight to Baker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, most of the time they do. Yeah, publishers prefer that. Well, your book has been uh, on the back of the cover. I was looking at this. We were looking at it here in our office and kind of marveling that David Lyle Jeffrey, David Bentley Hart, and Joseph Pierce all gave you positive blurbs on the back cover. So I probably shouldn't say anything uh, positive about it because I wouldn't want it to get to your head. But um, that you've got a you've got a pretty good collection of, of good blurbs there that it wouldn't even matter if I said anything anyway. So um, that was. I, that was an amazing experience. I, you know, I feel like when you get when you get a compliment like that, all you think is, "I endeavor to become more worthy of this praise." Mm, yeah. <laughs> well. I'm-